Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Stephen Angle, the author of Growing Moral, a Confucian Guide to Life. Stephen is a philosophy writer and researcher specializing in Chinese philosophy, Confucianism, Neo-Confucianism, and comparative philosophy. His research focuses on philosophy's role in human rights, politics, and ethics. In the conversation, Stephen and I discuss Confucianism as a way of life, the power of rituals, how to embody reading, the wisdom of reflection, Confucian wisdom for daily life, and much more. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Stephen Angle. Well, Stephen, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise, I'm happy to to have you. And today we're going to be talking about your book, Growing Moral, A Confucian Guide to Life. As we were discussing before I hit record, really enjoyed the book, very practical, so big fan, and also a fan of the series that it's part of, uh, Guides to the Good Life series by um, Oxford uh, University Press. So I'm curious, you know, how did this book come to be? How is it part of this series? If you could speak a little about that to get us started. Yeah, absolutely. So... Let's see. So the series editor, Stephen Grimm, and I have uh, known each other for several years. We got connected because we were both interested in uh, teaching uh, that connected up uh, philosophy with lived experience more directly than is traditionally done. And he, he reached out to me with some questions about a course that I had taught. And one thing led to another And a few years after that, he and I and Megan Sullivan, who I think you may have also interviewed on this series um, uh, at Notre Dame, we, the three of us, ran a NEH Summer Institute um, uh, for this back in maybe summer 2018, something like that, um, uh, for philosophers who were interested in sort of energizing this philosophy as a way of life approach to to some degree, their teaching, sorry, to some degree, their research, but also uh, very much their their pedagogy. And it's just, it's a really energizing thing to do. Um, and so Stephen and Megan and I uh, really, really enjoyed doing that. As the series was coming together, he asked me to be on the advisory board and sort of help think about the, the nature of the series and um, and had had hoped all along, I think, to have a book on Confucianism come out early in the series, and, and I was excited about that myself. Well, I love it. Glad that you did, and uh, I, I love the format. I, I think I have all four books in the in the series, and they're all, you know, relatively short, multiple chapters. The chapters are a bit shorter in length. How do you think that you know helps the the average reader out there to maybe? get some of this practical wisdom and then and then hopefully take the next step and put it into practice. I think that all of us 
who have written uh, books in this series found the short chapters to be maybe initially intimidating, but ultimately really liberating. Um, it's, mm. it, it forces us to write in a different way. For many of us, this is the first time writing for a broader audience and what, you know, what that really meant, you know, you sort of have a sense, uh, uh, vaguely, but what it's like in practice is, is not as clear. And so what taking a topic and, and just forcing ourselves to, to discuss it in 2000 or 3000 words in these, these short chapters, um, uh, is just a really great sort of discipline. Um, and it, it means that we just, we can't get bogged down in, you know, textual details or philosophical minutiae because, you know, we realize we got to, got to, the points got to come across, um, uh, much more quickly than that. So I, I just think that structurally it turns out to be a fabulous way to go. Great. Well, I, I've really enjoyed them and, uh, and it can be a great introduction and jumping off point for people that want to take a deeper dive into things. I, I know I had a, a previous guest, one of the early guests on the show, uh, Nick Bomarito, sure. who who has a book in that series, Seeing Clearly, which I really enjoyed. And for me, that has been a, a introduction and a jumping off point to really explore explore some of those topics further. But maybe we could go back in, in time a little bit if we could. I, I generally start off with some sort of question around, you know, what started this whole search for whatever that may be? How did you get an interest in philosophy, maybe specifically Chinese philosophy? Yeah. Well, I think for me, it was, as, and as I suspect for a lot of people who are not children of missionaries or however, however exactly the earlier generation, you know, got interested in this kind of thing. Um, for me, the, there were really two separate things initially. I got a, I got interested in philosophy as a you know first year student in college. Just took started taking a class um, with actually one of the people who is still very much a leader of the kind of philosophy that I um, broadly speaking that I like to do. Nancy Sherman at Georgetown University. She was my first philosophy mm. teacher, um, and I, so I I really. Uh, enjoyed that, but mostly what I was studying was Plato, Aristotle, Kant, you know, uh, Western philosophers. That's what, that's what the classes um, uh, were about. Um, and then at the same time, I randomly happened into a class on Chinese history, was fascinated, started studying Chinese language, which uh, is not easy, um, but it is super cool, right? You're learning to pronounce things without, you know, something means something different depending on exactly what the intonation is and learning to write Chinese characters. So it's pretty easy for it to get a grip on you. And so those two things I think um, were initially separate as I started to learn more about Chinese history and Chinese, let's say intellectual thought, I did find something a little bit unsatisfying about it because we really were just looking at things historically you know, what, mm. what did Confucius think? What did, you know, I got, I was really interested in these medieval thinkers, um, uh, who were, you know, hugely influential in their time, but the, the way we approached it was, was very much, you know, as if you're studying something in a museum, whereas my philosophy classes weren't doing that. My philosophy classes, even if we were reading Plato, we were thinking about, does this make sense? How should this influence us today? 
uh, we were, you know, engaged in this sort of critical back and forth with uh, with ancient texts. And that's what I felt was missing. Um, uh, and so it was really not until graduate school uh, where I was able to put these things together. But, you know, I was pulled uh, to, to try to figure out how to do both of these things. And I ended up in graduate school studying Chinese philosophy at the University of Michigan. Um, mm. And so that was that was a big step um, of, of beginning to think philosophically um, uh, about Confucianism philosophically, about Chinese, the Chinese traditions philosophically. Uh, and then, you know, I could go on. I mean, it's sort of another step of how getting to the point of really taking it more seriously in, as, a, as a practice, if you want me to, uh, mm. to go there. Well, let me throw out another question, and then maybe that'll um, lead you down there. Take this wherever, wherever you want. But it, um, it's really interesting, as you're describing that, of someone, you know, started out in Western philosophy, familiar with that, and then, you know, exploring these different philosophies. Something interesting to me, there was a, a book a long time ago that I, that I read. I used to read a lot of leadership books, and it was called The Greats on Leadership. Mm. And the, the last chapter was basically on Lao Tzu, and the author talked about you know, why so many of, of the particular chapters were, you know, from Western philosophers and Western thinkers and things like that, and basically said something along the lines of the Eastern philosophy is a bit of the advanced <laughs> class, you know, <laughs> and it, uh, it always stuck with me, and it, it kind of led me down a bit of a path to ex- explore and maybe have a bit of an interest um you know, beyond that. But is that how you see it? Is it, is it maybe a bit more advanced or difficult to understand or put into practice? I don't know. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of different stories that go different ways. Um, a, most of them probably coming from, uh, Chinese thinkers actually, or, or thinkers in the East who, uh, they have no choice. Um, now, now I'm talking about people more in the 19th and 20th century, because they have no choice but to sort of face squarely um, Western philosophy and, and to figure out what to make of it in light of their own experiences and traditions. Whereas the sort of, you know, hegemony of Western culture um, in international academia and certainly in higher education uh, in the U.S. means that you're not really forced to do that if you don't feel like it in in the U.S. educational system. Um, so. There's all you know. So there's a you know a, a famous thinker from early in the 20th century in China who has a, an account where the sort of Western thought is stage one, uh, Chinese thought stage two, Indian thought stage three. So for him, the highest learning is sort of uh, Buddhism from India. Um, for me, I don't really see it that way. Uh, with a you know some kind of progression um, from from one school to another. Um, I'm more interested in thinking about uh, thinking across traditions um, uh, and how from wherever you are, from whatever your starting point is, whether it's, you know, within some kind of, you know, Western liberal Kantian framework or a a, a Eastern, let's say, Confucian framework, um, we can learn from one another. Um, And that means be, be challenged by one another need uh you know and so the the philosophical views aren't just set and done with 
they're evolving, right? That was why it was exciting to challenge Plato to think that, you know, I mean, obviously first year student in college, I was probably wrong about my challenges to Plato. Um, but there are, you know, uh, Plato and the rest of the greats, no matter where you're looking, um, uh, I think they're not prophets revealing, revealing truth. Um, you know, they're, they're thinkers who are grappling with many of the same issues that we're grappling with today. For any listeners that maybe are new to Confucianism, you know, how do you, what is Confucianism? How do you answer that question? Right. Well, so one kind of question that that could be um, is, is it a religion? Is it philosophy? How should, how should we think about it in that light? Um, and that's complicated. I th certainly think it's something, if you have a very inclusive understanding of what a religion is, then it's, it is, among other things, a religion. Uh, but I think what's important for us here in particular is that it is a, a very human teaching. Um, uh, so the, the great thinkers of the tradition were uh, not prophets. They weren't, uh, you know, they just were, they were wise people who were reflecting on their traditions and on their societies and, and uh, trying to think about how we humans can best live in the world. Um, uh, so that meant they had to, you know, they couldn't just rely on the fact that God had revealed something. Uh, they had to explain why we should live the way that they're arguing we should. So that makes it philosophy, right? There's, there's, a, there, you know, there's this reasoning going on, even if the, you know, the genres in which Chinese philosophy is written are quite different from those in which uh, Western philosophy is written. Uh, which sometimes gives you the sense that, you know, Lao is more advanced because it's harder, right? Well, it's uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of an epic poem in a way, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very different uh, uh, genre than, than most of uh, what we see in, in the West. Um, so that's kind of looking at it, you know, big picture. Um, more specifically, I think that uh, Confucianism uh, offers a way to think about who we are as people and how we should live in relationship to one another and to the, the cosmos that we inhabit um, that starts very much from our sort of social embeddedness from, you know, concretely from the fact that we are born into a family and we have, we have parents. Um, uh, there's others around um, uh, who, who raise us. And so, Thinking about our, uh, ourselves in relation to others is very, very fundamental to Confucianism. And yet, um, we're, it's not just some kind of collectivist thing, right? We, we, it's very much about the good of each individual and trying to grow to become a better person. So there's this, this uh, ideal of sagehood, which everybody can reach in principle. Um, uh, and the fundamental meaning of that is that we all can become better than we are right now. Uh, whether we actually become a sage is ultimately relatively unimportant. What matters is that we strive to become a sage. We strive to become better. And so it's a teaching about how to do that. I was really struck by the practical and specific nature of, of, of some of these lessons. Um, a couple months back, I, wrote in a, a newsletter, a, a few things that were inspired by, by your book and, a, and another book on, you know, rituals, reading, and reflection. 
And these are things that come up and have come up on the podcast and come up in various different wisdom traditions. But there was really some specific and practical guidance that 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 came with these. So maybe if we could start with rituals, you know, what what are the meaning behind rituals and why do they matter? So I think for most people today, ritual seems like a a, a very narrow category, something that maybe you encounter when going to a religious service. Um, for the Confucians, rituals are all around us. Rituals are structuring all of our social interactions, including this one right now. And so, and what those rituals are, are doing is they're, you know, they're these, they're social conventions. Uh, they are passed down. They're not written down in, in a, uh, in a, the way that laws are, you know, there might be a book of etiquette, something like that. That's telling you somebody's view of what the rituals are. Um, but it's, uh, it's much more loose than that. And that's important, but they really give us guidance on how we interact with one another. And that guidance helps to shape the situations that we find ourselves in. Right. So the reason rituals are so important for Confucians is because it's not easy to become better. We don't start as sages for most of the Confucians. They think we have some, sort of innate nudge towards caring about others. But we have, for all of the Confucians, we have a lot of work to do. So how do you do that? How do you make yourself become, you know, how do you force yourself to become more spontaneously good? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, uh, you can't just sit around and wait for it to happen. You have to do something. And the rituals are key to that. Right? The idea is, Take the example of, of uh, attending a funeral. One of the rituals that's very common, at least in American funerals, is to wear kind of dark colors, to speak to one another in muted tones. Now, maybe you're doing that partly because you're sad, but not everybody's sad, right? There's the, you know, second cousin of the whoever who has no idea who this person is, um, uh, who is annoyed that they had to leave behind their xbox or you know whatever right but the ritual applies to them too and their parents might be really kind of forcing them to uh, abide by that ritual the effect of that is first of all on others that if if this kid isn't isn't sort of jumping around and making noise then the others can engage more intentionally in reflection in um uh in the the, the broader practice of the funeral but even that kid themselves, right, by uh, forcing uh, themselves to, to rein themselves in, has more of an opportunity to think about, okay, what's going on here? Why am I here? Um, uh, and over time, participating in rituals, if they're, if they're good rituals, and rituals absolutely can be assessed on, are they, are they well-designed or not, then they're going to help people who, who abide by those rituals to gradually become better over time. It, it's fascinating thinking about it, and if you start looking around in society, how there's just rituals everywhere. Sure enough, yeah. And I, I have a follow-up question that you you kind of already answered, but I I want to um, maybe have you elaborate a little bit. Of you mentioned maybe not something necessarily written down. Mm -hmm. 
And as I was thinking about it, I, I spent my my adult life in the in the military and maybe one of the things that we do there and in the federal government and probably organizations is you put something in writing, you put something in policy. And I remember even, you know, many years ago thinking about, you know, is this something that can be mandated or should be mandated? What what is the the difference there? Why is it important that it's maybe freely adopted, I guess, if you if you will? So I think that, yeah, it's a great question. And I think that the there's a number of things. So one of them is rituals are about really specific details in how we comport ourselves uh, in relation to others. And it would be extremely tedious and probably ultimately impossible to try to characterize all of the different dimensions uh, of ritual. So you could write down, you know, wear black um, uh, and, and something like that. But there's a lot to how you conduct yourself well in a setting like a funeral um, uh, that's difficult to capture that way. Um, so, you know, rituals themselves are things that you can do well or poorly, um, that you can, you can follow them with the virtue of propriety, right? That's somebody who really doesn't have to force themselves actually at, at this point. They, they not only know it, but they feel it. It comes smoothly that they're doing these things. Um, and, or you could do it in a more forced way. So part of the thing, uh, the, the reason why they aren't in general written down uh, is because it's they're just they outrun our ability to capture things um, uh, in words, and the fact that they're not captured in words doesn't mean they're not a ritual. Yeah. Whereas things that aren't written down aren't laws. You might say, "Oh, there should have been a law for that." Well, if there's not, there's not. Period. You could make a new law, right? Um, so laws have this very specific kind of structure. Um, they're much more sort of transparent and public. They can be changed by following a, a particular set of procedures. And rituals are um, both uh, sort of more and less changeable uh, than laws, right? Um, uh, they can be hard to change when you want to change them because they're just built into our societies, um, and, uh, uh, but on the other hand, that the fact that they're just built into our societies in that way is how they come to be taught to everybody. So I think they, they complement laws. Sometimes they're in tension with laws, but that's okay. Um, uh, it's a, it's mostly kind of productive tension. If it's a real problem, like let's say there's a sexist ritual and you've got a law that's, that's calling for, for, uh, gender equality, um, uh, well, that might be part of an effort to actually change the rituals, to, to sort of critique some mm -hmm. of these rituals. I appreciate you elaborating on that, on that, Stephen. It seems to be an important, important point, you know, not just individually, but as a, as a larger whole. Um, to transition into reading, I, I think many of the listeners are, are readers, people that are searching for, for wisdom what can we learn about the practice of reading from Confucianism? So there's a lot of reading in Confucianism, um, in part because it is founded in these classic texts, texts that were written by either putative sages from the past or at least wise folks um, uh, who are 
themselves trying to understand and develop this tradition. I think that some of the some of the really most acute and incisive ideas about reading come from later on in the tradition, because by that point, it's it's a lot of stuff. Um, uh, if you go back to the early days of Confucius or Kongzi, you know, in the fifth century, then the the written canon is just gradually emerging. So he talks about reading for sure, as do some of the other early Confucians, but the the just uh, breadth and, and uh, uh, amount of material uh, that makes up the tradition is, is relatively, uh, is, is, is pretty sparse at that point. Whereas for somebody later on, like uh, probably my favorite of the, of the Confucians is this guy named Zhu Xi from the 12th century. And he is arguably certainly one of the most influential humans in the history of the planet, um, uh, given that he wrote some extremely uh, uh, important interpretations of the Confucian classics, which were then read by everybody, pretty much all literate people in China for 800 years. Um, so that's a lot of people, right? Um, so Jushi is, um, is very concerned that we both read, but that we read well. In his day, the way to get ahead in Chinese society is by passing a set of exams, right? Civil service uh, exams, which in principle were open to any literate male. And if they did well enough on the exams, they could get a job in the imperial bureaucracy, which is, that was the route to success. So there was this sort of ideology of social mobility, which was you know, truer in ideology than in practice, but you know there was some something there. And to do well in the exams, you had to master the Confucian classics. So you had to read them. Uh, in many cases, you had to memorize them. But what did that mean, right? So got, you've got just millions of people engaged in this practice of reading. And Jushi was very disturbed by the degree to which what they were doing was they were reading in a way that would just enable them to do well on these tests, right? So worries about teaching the test are obviously very uh, uh, current today and for, for many of the same reasons, I think, right? We hope that our education today does something other than just enable people to do well on tests, um, uh, but the folks actually learn and grow as a result of uh, their education. That's what Jushi wanted. So, as you know, in this context, then how to approach these texts, how to read them, was was super important. And the key is, he didn't want us to just read quickly, read tons of material, you know, read in order, like you know, get the punchline and then move on. Um, uh, he wanted us to read slowly, to reread, to um, you know, if you think of a sort of extracting the the flavor from uh, a bite of food or a glass of wine or something like that, really dwelling on it um, uh, and uh, and really trying to uh, to get everything out of it. And then, you know, continuing with the, you know, the, the, the eating metaphor, just as you, you don't just taste it and spit it out, you, you know, you, you, uh, you metabolize it, you want it to become part of yourself. Well, the same thing is supposed to happen when we're reading. Um, you know, kids today, I've got a couple kids that are now out of college, but as they were going through, one of the things that they often talked about was whether or not they found something that they read to be relatable. Did it make sense mm -hmm. in terms of their own life? Well, 
Jushi was all about trying to make the reading of the classics re- relatable um, uh, in that sense. You're supposed to see how this story about, you know, Confucius or whatever um, uh, actually spoke to, to, to you in your life today um, uh, in a way that you could begin to, uh, to, to learn from. And so as you do this, you read the text over and over, you reflect on it, you think about how it's related to your life. It's supposed to become part of you in a way. It's supposed to change you, ultimately. It's supposed to inspire you in a way that will then go allow you to uh, act better, to respond to people better, um, even if it's not related to what you read in the book. So we go beyond the, the books ultimately. And so, and for, for Jushi, he says, ultimately, book learning is secondary. We spend a lot of time doing it, but the goal isn't mastering the books. The goal is becoming better. I, I found that to be so fascinating of this idea as you're talking about it, you're maybe, I, I think if I read something about embodying mm-hmm. what you're reading, yep. like really taking it in, but then at the same time, there's this, as you say, like books are, you know, not necessarily an end. There's an open-minded kind of questioning attitude that, that comes along with it. Um, I, I, I found that fascinating. I guess I, I kind of wrongly assumed when I, when I think of uh, rituals and this like respect for, for elders and, you know, uh, and teachers and things like that. But as you write in the book, it's completely acceptable as a way to seek greater understanding, to question something that, that you read or question a, uh, a professor, if you will. Could you speak about that, that balance, I guess, if you will? Yeah, that's great. That, um, and thanks for, for bringing that up because it is super important. It's easy to think about Confucianism as just this sort of um, strict doctrinaire thing where we're just supposed to internalize these ideas that are outside of us and follow them because of age-old authority. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We really are the, – the thing that is most important is building on the, the sort of intuitions and insights that we have within us to start with, right? So there are these – so I talk about in the, in the book these, these moral sprouts, uh, these, these uh, ways in which we do intuitively respond well to certain situations, easy situations, not to complicated ones and so on. Um, uh, and so the Confucians believe that there, that we, we have this kind of a starting point within us. And what that means is we have something that we can use to, to weigh, to test the stuff that we're reading, or at least let's say our understanding of what we're reading. So if you're reading, um, uh, something from somebody who seems according to, you know, everybody around to be pretty insightful and wise, and that uh, leads you to, you know, draw some kind of conclusion. But when you reflect on that, when you question it, if you try to doubt it in light of your own experiences or your own feelings, you just you've, there's a mismatch. You don't feel that it, it that everything is lining up. Then the result is you haven't. Uh, that's that's appropriate. Being open minded like that is suggesting that you haven't actually figured out what the kernel of the, uh, of the, of the teaching in that text was. Um, uh, and so that means, right. Challenge it, rethink, 
And they do think that ultimately this process is going to help us arrive at some pretty solid set of truths about the world. But it isn't just, it doesn't just come from reading. It comes from this ongoing process of reading, reflecting, challenging, pushing back, questioning, rereading, um, uh, and then gradually we're, uh, the, they, they think, and I think there's some real insight here that we can arrive at a more solid foundation for moving forward. I, I love it. It uh it reminded me of something I I read a while back. I think it was something from from Goethe. He said, you know, everything's been thought of a thousand <laughs> thousand thousand times, but it's like you have to rethink it yourself. Mm-hmm. It, in in some way, it has to become your your own. It, I mean, if I can just jump in, the there is this there's this idea, particularly for the Neo-Confucians like Zhu Xi, they really emphasize this idea in Chinese, it's which means to get it for yourself, um, uh, right? So becoming virtuous is something you have to do. Nobody can do it for you. Um, uh, and so that, you know, that's exactly, exactly right. Well, before we get to the practice of reflection, Maybe we could go back to, to something you've touched on a couple times is this this idea of, of cultivating your sprouts and, and maybe broadly speaking, this character development. Um, you you have uh, in that particular chapter, I think it's from Mengza, please correct, correct that pronunciation if, if needed, of uh, the well. Could you could you speak a bit about that? Sure, sure. No, you did a good job. Mengza, yeah. Uh, or or Mencius, uh, he was one of the... The two early Confucians who, when Jesuits showed up in China, they decided to give him Latinized names. We have Confucius or Kongza and and Mencius or Mengza. So cer- certainly the most famous passage uh, from, from Mengza is he asks us uh, to envision what would happen if all of a sudden you saw a baby about to fall into a well. So wells were these circular you know, holes in the ground in ancient China. And so... What, what, what happens? And he says, you have this spontaneous feeling of alarm and commiseration, of concern or caring for the baby, not because you know the baby's parents and, you know, think, know how they would feel or, you know, there's all kinds of after the fact kind of reasoning that we might uh, go through. But you're just your immediate response to seeing this life in danger is, 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 is care and concern. Um, and he doesn't think that that means, okay, we're done. We're all virtuous, but he thinks what it shows is there is this, a sort of intrinsic directedness towards caring, which is, it comes out in a situation like that. In another situation, it might not come out, um, uh, because it's more complicated or, you know, imagine yourself walking down, uh, a city street today and, you notice out of the corner of your eye um, a panhandler, you know, uh, at least somebody who looks to you like he's, they're going to be asking you for for money. Um, and maybe maybe what you do is uh, pull out your phone, start looking at your phone, right? Don't pay, don't make eye contact. Maybe even cross the street, but you find a way to not engage, right? We can, we do that all the time. Mung's point here is that if you pay attention it'll be like the baby in the well. Um, uh, we'll feel our, uh, our compassion welling up. 
And if we work at it, if we, you know, go through rituals and do these different uh, practices, reading and so on and so forth, we can get better and better at being motivated by these moral feelings we have within us, of which one is this compassion that I've been talking about or, or care. Um, uh, and that's what it is to become more, more moral, um, uh, to be just more robustly guided by our moral feelings. Let me ask what, what seems to be maybe an obvious question. When it comes to these different wisdom traditions, whether it's maybe something in, in Buddhism, like Buddha nature, or the fact that there's saints and, and sages, it's like we're capable of goodness, and maybe we have this natural goodness or innate goodness within us. Why is that? Why is that important? It seems like we almost need some sort of reminder of that. I'm not sure the question, but it's just a curious. Thing. Yeah, sure. Well, so I think that, um, and what the Confucians would say here is, if all we had was these moral feelings, well, then sure we wouldn't need the teachings at all. We wouldn't need to practice anything. Everybody would be perfect. But that's not how things are. I think the Confucian psychology is actually very realistic. So on the one hand, the things that they say we have sprouts of, these, more, these sort of nascent uh, uh, moral feelings that are beginning to emerge but need to be cultivated and grown, there's lots of contemporary evidence that something like that is right. Um, uh, that empathy, you know, emerges early, early on, uh, very young babies uh, experience this in, in different ways and so on and so forth. So I think that the, the, the claim that's being made is not at all implausible. Um, but they also recognize that obviously there are other sorts of feelings that we experience, feelings of, of uh, uh, hunger, desire, so on and so forth. And the Confucian view is that those are neutral. Those when they are experienced to the right degree and in the right way, then they can be good, part of a good life. So a, a, a you know, a sage um, uh, desires sex and, and, uh, and you know, hungers for, uh, for delicious food, but doesn't do so in a way that um, is ultimately problematic, that, you know, doesn't want so much delicious food that nobody else gets any or something like that. So, we ha uh, and these physical feelings, which are neutral, but can lead us awry if, if we if we let them let them go. They're they're pretty powerful. They actually don't need much cultivation. The ones that need help are the more vulnerable moral feelings, right? So we have to pay attention. We have to work at it because of the way that we're set up. Is growing moral, being virtuous, really a critical? central aspect of the good life in Confucianism, similar to maybe, I think of um, maybe Stoicism and, and different types of traditions where virtue is the only good type of thing? I think the answer is yes. The, it's important uh, that we grow moral um, in relation to others. We can't do it. We have to. So as I was saying a few minutes ago, we have to do it ourselves but we can't do it by ourselves. Um, uh, we, we need help. Um, uh, and also 
a, a, a central part of what it is to be moral is to be in relation to others, to be caring for others, to be deferential to others so that we can learn from them, um, to be respectful of others and so on. So virtue is something uh, that is successfully cultivated only in a society. So we have to grow as individuals as we grow hand in hand, as our societies become better also. But yeah, I think that's, you know, the smallest society is the family. Um, uh, and that, and then, um, so families are super important, but Confucians are also absolutely clear that if you only care about your family, then that's selfish. That's being too kind of privatistic. So we have to expand beyond the family. So to transition to this, uh, the final topic of reflection, when it comes to, to growing moral and, and walking this path, if you will, what role does reflection play and what does that look like? So I think it's, it's really important. On the one hand, the Confucians care a lot about what we do. Uh, and so you have to, you have to, uh, you have to practice stuff. You have to make a difference in the world. Their goal is not just sort of abstract contemplation. Um, uh, that, that would, that's not a sagely life. So I think that reflection is not an end, but it's a means. Um, uh, and it's a means for, for a number of reasons. But one of the keys is that only if we work at looking within, if we reflect back on what our motivations might have been, can we begin to parse out some of these different strands of motivation and realize, okay, that was, that was good. But then this other situation where I didn't respond so well, this, that was not so good. And let me, let me try to figure out why. Let me think about what can I do going forward um, uh, to change how I react. And that's got to be, it's ultimately about how you see things initially that changes how you react. You can't, you know, retro, retroactively, you can't undo some kind of reaction that you have. So reflection is, is, is just central to this process of learning from what you've experienced and from what you are experiencing. Um, I think it's, it's different in a way from uh, other sorts of sort of meditation traditions um, where it's not so much about disconnecting the self or disconnecting from the self. Um, uh, it's about better understanding and the, the self and then figuring out what concrete things to do to help the self grow more in more constructive fashion. I love the practical nature. As I, as I said in the beginning, just uh, lots of practical wisdom in here. I think the listeners are, are really going to enjoy it. Let me ask something you mentioned earlier, though, about Confucianism basically could be considered a, a religion. What are the, the views and beliefs of Confucianism from a religious perspective, I, I guess, or, or, or just in general? So I think the, you know, the responsible answer uh, to that kind of question is always begins with something like, well, it depends what you mean by religion. Um, uh, so one of the things often people mean is, well, what do they, what do the Confucians be believe about the afterlife? What do the Confucians believe about, about God? Um, uh, and 
for the most part, there's an exception here and there, but for the most part, um, the Confucians don't care very much about an afterlife. Um, they have various beliefs um, uh, that, you know, maybe the ancestors go and, you know, live on in some, some sort of a sense. Uh, um, uh, and there are ghosts and spirits and different kinds of deities inhabiting the world uh, of, of ancient China, as far as they were concerned. But that didn't have, that, that doesn't have any great significance in terms of who we are and how we live our lives. It's not that we're aspiring to some afterlife. Um, uh, the Confucius is asked by, by a student at some point to tell him about, you know, what, what happens after death? And the, his response is, you don't yet understand how to live, right? So that, you know, wait till you figure that out, uh, which is to say, till you become a sage, which is more or less going to take your entire life. So um, uh, the, the big challenge is how to be a person, how to be a person in society in relation to others, right? So in that sense, if, you're, if, 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 if for, for, for some listener, religion means a story about, uh, the centrality of gods and the afterlife and so on. Well, then in that sense, Confucianism is not a religion. But on the other hand, if it, if, you know, as a, if you asked a contemporary uh, religious studies scholar, you know, for their definition of religion, they're going to say something about maybe relationship to ultimate meaning um, uh, or ultimate values, uh, as well as probably something about rituals. So Confucians, they've got the rituals, right? That's very clear. Um, uh, and I think that they do have a sense of ultimate meaning and value. It is built into our cosmos. Um, uh, and I use the word cosmos, you know, drawing it, drawing, um, uh, kind of from that Greek notion in a way, because it is not a just bare naturalistic universe with no values in it, right? The, the cosmos is under, it's understood to be a place with values already built in. There's no sort of hard separation between facts and values in a Confucian cosmos, which frankly I think is much more perceptive and wise uh, than some, you know, the, the, some folks uh, today who who think that no, 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 there's just facts and science and values are completely added on from the outside. And I don't think that's right. Um, so. In, especially in some of the writings of the Neo-Confucians, these later folks who I, who I really like, um, they're just our inspiring visions of a, uh, a cosmos in which, as they say, we individual humans form one body with all things. We're connected up with everything else. Not, you know, I mean, physically, you and I are not physically connected right now, um, uh, but there is a connection um, uh, between us, um, uh, and really ultimately with everything else, it doesn't all matter equally. My relationship to my, my mother matters more than my relationship to some, you know, random thing on my desk or, or even some, some other person, but still there's a connectedness and a value there. And so there, there's this really expansive vision that I think can counts as a religious vision, um, that can be pretty inspiring. Well, I love it. This has been great, Stephen. Um, we've made it to just this, uh, this final wrap up question that we ask most, most guests time permitted. And that's around, you know, how do you define 
or think about wisdom in daily life today? Yeah, well, that's a that's uh, it's a wonderful way way to end, and I think that some of what I would say I was really just gesturing at. Um, uh, I think that one of the one way to encapsulate a lot of the uh, of the lessons of the book and a lot of what I think the Confucians teach is pay attention. The because as we learn to pay attention to our 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 world to our cosmos, but in particular to the corner of it that we're inhabiting, um, uh, I think what comes with that is an expanded sense of self um, uh, and the motivation to act as as we're supposed to. It's it's when we don't pay attention, when we close ourselves off, um, uh, that our sort of nascent ability to care and respect and so on and so forth is not able to get be activated. Um, it's important that we pay attention in a sort of balanced or harmonious ways way, right? So if you try to care about everything all at once, then you're going to become overwhelmed. Um, uh, and so, like I said, I, I want to pay attention to the needs of others in my community here, but I also care about my somewhat elderly mother, you know, living two or three hours from here, um, who I don't see as often as I would like to. Um, uh, and so how do I balance those things, et cetera, right? So, uh, but trying to, to keep things in view and not close ourselves off, that's Confucian wisdom. Well, beautiful. And again, for the listeners, the book is Growing Moral, A Confucian Guide to Life. Highly recommend it. Where would you point listeners that are interested in, in learning more about you and, and your work in the world, Stephen? Yeah, if people want to learn more, um, uh, my website is sangle, sangle, uh, dot Wesleyan, uh, sorry, sangle.faculty.wesleyan.edu um, is my, uh, my professional website. And the other thing I'll mention is that together with a couple of colleagues here at Wesleyan, um, I teach a course called Living a Good Life, which uh, draws on a number of these traditions, Confucianism, also Taoism, Aristotelianism, Stoicism. Uh, and we periodically run a online version of that class. Um, I guess we, we did that last January. Uh, it's going to open up again. And there's information both about the class that we teach, um, all the readings and so on are available um, uh, and then about this online video version of the class at livingagoodlife.com. Um, so uh, check it out and uh, hope, hope folks enjoy. Well, that's great. I'll, I'll link both of those in the show notes so people can easily find it. Uh, Stephen Angle, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Right. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.